All right. So, um, if you've if you've been coming or following, a lot of you that follow me on Facebook, or a lot of you that be watching this right now or watching it later, um, we've talked a lot about uh, deconstruction, Christian deconstruction, and um, <clears throat> boy, man, it's been quite. I think this started for me. Eh, I say 2016. That's just when it kicked into high gear. Um, it was around this time, three years ago, 2017, that I was on my sabbatical, and that was that was phenomenal. We went to Phoenix, Arizona, my family and I, and just had an incredible life-changing experiences as we allowed ourselves to uh, sort of dip our toe into other belief systems, people that believe com- totally contrary to us, that would not in any way fit the idea of an orthodox or uh, Christian, certainly not what we were at the time, an evangelical Christian. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we had believed and I had even taught, you know, all, a lot of that stuff was of the devil. And then we ended up getting more help and healing from people that were doing energy work and Reiki and past life regression therapy and all kinds of sort of out there stuff than, uh, than we were getting from the church at that time. Um, and I think collectively, if I were to look at my experiences, I would say I drew more freedom and healing and peace from stepping outside of the Christian paradigm than I ever got within the Christian paradigm. And so I was begin. Uh, I was able to, and for many years, I'd seen just how t- toxic and dysfunctional a lot of churches were, the way they operated, the way they treated women. Um, but what I didn't realize was that my own belief system had created for me a lot of anxiety. In fact, when I was able to let go of my belief system and my toxic image of God, I was able to really come to a place of mental health that I wasn't able to get to in any other way. And when I got that realization that what was making me sick was my views of God, my beliefs about God that I had inherited from the Christian tradition, I remember just being in complete and utter shock because the, the very thing that was supposed to make me well, the very thing that was supposed to make me better, uh, give me life and that more abundantly, was the very thing that was making me anxious. And since then, I've met a ton of people who have uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder related to their faith. Uh, OCD technically is an anxiety disorder just because you want to have your sock drawer all uh, <clears throat> nice and tidy or... Uh, you know, you're, you're a neat and orderly person. That does not necessarily make you someone who has OCD. OCD is related to uh, magical thinking and ways of managing anxiety. So you can see how that might creep in. If you believe in this angry God who who's ready to judge the world, this monster God who wants to uh, send people to fry and burn in hell for all eternity, give them eternal conscious torment because they didn't get their history right or whatever, and so it really was in 2017, uh, about this time, around Easter time, that I began thinking through a lot of the issues. So what I want to address today is, is the, the resurrection. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with the resurrection? And I just want to say that this is where I'm at today. And this could uh, completely and totally change as more information becomes available. Because, uh, yeah, it's just it's, it's been a journey, right? So I think we need to start, if we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to talk about our faith, especially something where that, that people believe and all over the world today will be talking about how the resurrection of Jesus determines for a person what happens to them after they die or what happens to them for all eternity. 
I think we need to look at our epistemology. So epistemology, <clears throat> big word, right? <clears throat> epistemology, basically, uh, we all have one. And the issue is how do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? <clears throat> Gosh, sorry, I don't know why I'm so congested today. How do we know what we know? And so if I'm honest, and, and this is where it's tough, because everybody's epistemology is going to have some level of subjectivity to it. It's, it's not going to all be objective. And here's what I mean. We are going to choose beliefs that fit our personalities, our preferences. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, that's going to fit with our life experiences. And we are going to have <coughs> prejudices and preferences towards certain beliefs, and we are going to look for evidence that's going to support those beliefs, and we are going to deny evidence that contradicts those beliefs. For one reason, because cognitive dissonance makes us very, very uncomfortable. And cognitive dissonance means when I hold a certain model, a certain belief uh, about reality and about the world, and information comes to me that challenges that, it makes me very, very uncomfortable because it challenges exactly that, my worldview. Now, the more time you spend on something, the more you're going to believe it, whether it's true or not. You are basically programming hypnotically yourself to believe something when you're going to the same information over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> and that's true of all of us. That's not just true of us as children. The more time you spend with something, the more emotionally invested you are in something, uh, the, the stronger and more conviction you're going to hold that belief with and the harder it's going to be for that to be challenged. So I'm going to say from the outset that, you know, obviously, like all of you and like everybody, I'm still working within my own subjective frameworks. But I want to tell you why I believed, why I believed in the person of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus, needing to pray the sinner's prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, all that stuff. <clears throat> Quite simply because I was raised with it. I was born into a Christian uh, family. We celebrated Easter. My mom would read from us from the story Bibles uh, often. I, I want to say every night, but I know it wasn't every night. But I do have those memories etched in my mind of her reading the Bible stories to us. And especially around this time of year, I used to love to get the story Bible out during Holy Week. We would uh, acknowledge Holy Week in the Methodist Church. We would go to usually a Monday-Thursday service where we would eat lamb, really good lamb. I learned to like lamb. Um, we would do um, communion. <coughs> then, uh, you know, that week oftentimes we'd watch, you know, we didn't have a lot of TV back then, only three channels or four channels or whatever it was. But we would watch uh, uh, things like Jesus of Nazareth and The Day Christ Died and some of those older movies, The Robe, Ben-Hur. They made a powerful impression on me. And then everybody was always happy on Sunday morning. We always got a new suit and, and the Easter eggs, and we would go to church, and everybody would say, He is risen, and we would, we would sing, <clears throat> you know, all those songs. And so it had a really, really powerful impact and effect on me. And we did that year after year after year after year <clears throat> for, <clears throat> you know, my entire life. So then when I became a young adult, I did start questioning things. I did start... Uh, went through some hard times, wondered about where is God, who is God. We ended up going to college 
and met a bunch of other Christians who took me to church. Different kind of church experience. It was Assembly of God, totally different than the Methodist church experience. People are speaking in tongues, they're going longer, hugging you, you know, that kind of stuff. And I came across the writings of Josh McDowell, and Josh McDowell's written several books, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict was the most popular one. But he, uh, you know, he lays out the historical, at least according to him, the historical uh, evidence for the person of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We're going to look at that a little bit, I think. Hopefully I got my notes. Yeah, we're going to look at that a little bit in a minute. Uh, and then I just, uh, you know, I've always been kind of the person that goes all in or not all the way in at all. And so I went all, all in. And... Um, and I had, I think, uh, some advantages, maybe to some of my brethren who've gone through deconstruction, in that I had a lot of supernatural experiences that were um, undeniably from another realm. So with engaging through the person of Jesus, the spirit, the realm of the spirit, <clears throat> uh, and those of you that were around us, we saw multiple healings and miracles and um answered prayer, crazy, crazy synchronicities. I mean, a lot of weird stuff that was going on. And so that would always substantiate or uphold those beliefs that I had. And then, um, like I said, went through this sort of deconstructing process in the sense that I began to realize this idea, let, let, let's just lay this out. So here's the idea with most evangelical Christians and a lot of Protestant Christians Here's the idea. God creates humanity in his own image and likeness. He puts two naked people in a garden, and they talk to a snake, and they eat from the wrong tree. And because they eat from the wrong tree, uh, all of us are screwed. <laughs> they get thrown out of the garden, and we all come from this sort of fallen couple. And so we're all this tainted, fallen race of people who have a bent and a predisposition against God. So, so here's God, God the Almighty. He says, I know, let's, let's create a race of people that we love, uh, a family of people, human beings that we love, and let's do it like this. <laughs> let's put this tree in the garden, just uh, let's let the serpent, the talking serpent, come in and just tempt them. And then let's uh, allow them to become, in their nature, something totally contrary to us, and I'm saying us because we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how will we, how will we save them? What will we do with them? We, we create them to be have an eternal consciousness, an eternal ego, an eternal sense of self apart from their body. And I know um, I will go down and torture myself. Um, or, son, you go down there and I will torture you. And if I torture you and I kill you and this horrible, excruciating death, then I'll be able to forgive their sins. I'll be able to let go of their sins. Um, but even though Adam's fall in the garden, you know, eating at the tree seems like a simple thing, uh, affected the entirety of the human race. Um, hate to tell you, Jesus, but, you know, you being horribly tortured and murdered so that I can forgive humanity, that's not going to affect the entire human race because 
the reason they're in this mess to begin with was we gave them free will, so we need to give them a free will on how to choose us. And so they sit there and say, hmm, <clears throat> well, how are they going to choose us? What, what are we going to make the basis for saving? I know what we'll do. We'll make the basis for saving uh, believing in the historical event of the resurrection. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cause an event to happen in a time period where it cannot be filmed or recorded or verified. We are going to cause this event to happen many, 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 many thousands of years after humanity has already been in this fallen state. But we'll show up and we'll cause this event to happen that no one's ever seen before. No one's ever seen someone die and then just get up on their own. I mean, I'm not talking about they died and people got around them and prayed for them and brought them back. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you buried grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, son, daughter, whatever. Put them in the ground. Put them in a sepulcher. And three days after that, they show up at your house in a physical body and have dinner with you. Nobody's ever seen that. In fact, that sounds completely ludicrous to our mind based upon our experience. So now we come back to epistemology. How do you know what you know? So you cannot verify that in any way, shape, or form with your experience, the physical resurrection of Jesus at all. You cannot. Even if Jesus has appeared to you in visions like he has to me, even if you've seen Jesus with your open eyes, even if you've been to heaven and seen the Lord, those are all experiences that still do not verify for you the historical validity of the resurrection because you weren't there. You didn't experience it. You weren't one of the 12 disciples. And we'll maybe come back and talk about those visions. In fact, we will in just a minute explain those experiences. And so here's the deal. We're going to have people in the 21st century go out and preach a historical event. Preach something from history that they themselves have never really examined the historical evidence for. That they themselves did not experience. That their epistemology, the only reason they believe it is because they themselves, like me, were perhaps raised in a Christian home. Like me, Christianity was what they were exposed to. Uh, like me, somebody with a Bible preached to them that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And this is God's wonderful plan of salvation. If you can believe in this historical event, in this history, if you can believe in this history person, you can believe in this historical event, then something amazing and powerful is going to happen that's going to change your heart and change your life. And yet most of us know it doesn't change. That isn't. Believing in the historical event isn't what changes our heart or changes our life. Changing our thinking changes our life. Changing our behaving, changing the things that we do, the way that we feel and think about ourselves. If we're honest, that's what changes us. That, that there's as many people getting changed in Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe more because they're following 12 steps towards change, than people who simply believe in a historical event about Jesus. And yet somehow God is going to stake the entirety of people's eternity. So God loves this person over here. He loves them. He wants to be with them for all eternity. He so deeply loves them that he tortured and punished himself, child abused his own son in the greatest act of cosmic child abuse so that he could forgive them. 
And then he's going to require them to believe an event that's completely incredulous, that goes entirely against their experience as a human being, that has never happened before or since, that they cannot experience and that they cannot verify. It's just somebody told them. So somebody shows up to them. So take someone who wasn't raised, take somebody who was raised Muslim, take somebody who was raised Hindu, take somebody who was raised uh, atheist, or take someone who's a critical thinker and a researcher and knows how to do historical research, and you tell them you have to believe in this historical event or in order to be saved, and they reject that because there's not good sound evidence for it out there. They didn't see it. They're taking the word of people that lived 2,000 years ago and taking the word of someone who took 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 the word of someone. And how do we know? How do we know? How do we know? And so he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to accept that because my mind, I, I, I just, I can't accept that. And so God says, well, that's too bad. Now you're going to fry and be tortured for all eternity. And the Trinity looks at each other and says, yeah, that's an awesome plan. Let's do that. Oh, I know, we'll send the Holy Spirit. We'll send the Holy Spirit to convict, to help people come to the truth. Well, the Holy Spirit's doing a miserable job. Oh, and we'll leave Satan out there. Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. God's getting his ass kicked, if that's the case. Because despite what you want to think or believe, I mean, at best, if you take every Christian, you take every Catholic, every Orthodox person, uh, every Evangelical, and you... Uh, group that whole group together is still a very small minority of humanity that's alive today that is being saved, much less down through history. So, why do I still believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So let's let's just look at some of this. All right. So here's our problem. We, we said, well, we know it's true because the Bible says so, right? So I was raised on Mom's knee. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And um, and so and, and and for other people, you know, the Bible is the Word of God. I believe it from Genesis to Maps. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Uh, all that stuff. But here's the problem. Just do something for me. Just do one thing for me. Because we say the Word of that it is the Word of God and it is without error. But do something for me. Go read in all four Gospels. Go read the resurrection account itself, because you'll find four completely different and contradictory in some respects account. Uh, basically, in one version, uh, the women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus. It depends on which gospel record you read. In one, the stones rolled away and there's angels on the outside, uh, or an angel, I think, one angel outside before they go into the tomb and they go in and find it empty. In the other, the stone is rolled away and they go in and see two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. And in both sort of those accounts, the angels say, go back and tell the disciples that Christ, you know, that, that Jesus is risen. And while they're on their way back, Jesus appears to them. They fall down and worship him. And he says, go tell my brethren. And then they go and tell um, Jesus. And then Jesus shows up later and manifests to them. In Luke's account, uh, he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him at all. And uh, he, you know, has lunch with them. And when he has lunch with them, they realize he's risen from the dead. And then they go back to the company of the disciples and they begin to tell the disciples. And while they're talking to the disciples, Jesus appears and manifests. Um, in, in John's gospel, uh, Mary sees Jesus first but doesn't recognize him. She goes back 
and says, you know, they've taken away the Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And Peter and some of the other disciples go running. And, and, and so there's no consistency in those accounts. But there is consistency in one thing. And, and it's interesting because the Gospels... Uh, originally, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, said that the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. There's no serious scholar today alive that believes that the New Testament are eyewitness accounts because of the dating, because of internal data, because of uh, historical data. So more than likely what happened, these, these guys didn't write down gospel narratives. More than likely what happened is that Jesus sent them out to preach and teach. Remember, if you go back to the, the Great Commission, go out and teach everybody what I've commanded you. And so there's this oral tradition, and there are these faith communities that begin to rise up around these particular disciples. And then later on, these faith communities write uh, a collection of the teachings and the life of Jesus based on their memory, based on their memory. And so that's why there's not a lot of consistency here. But the one thing that is consistent is that they all say that the tomb was empty and that Jesus rose from the dead. So if we look at the gospel records themselves as having some historical value, which I believe that they do, um, then we can begin there and say, okay, there's, there's definitely some evidence, some written document evidence that there was this historical Jesus, these faith communities who believed in the historical Jesus and wrote about him. And they agree on certain things, even though they have different theological bends. They're, they're writing to portray Jesus in a certain way and in a certain light. They're, they're not writing this to make it like some journalistic account of eyewitness evidence to prove something to 21st century people. They are circulating a writing or a collection based on their community and group that was probably started by one of the disciples. Now, we also have some external evidence. Um, so Flavius Josephus, a uh, historian from the first century, <coughs> he gives record to Jesus and the Christians as well. He, he says this, I'll read you a quote. It says, around this time there was a man named Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it's proper to call him a man, for he was a miracle worker and a teacher of those who accept the truth with pleasure. He attracted, Jenny, he attracted many Jews as well as many from the Greek world. He was the Messiah, and when Pilate, at the instigation of our leading men, condemned him to the cross, those who cared for him from the outset did not stop. For he appeared to them alive on the third day, just as the divine prophets had said about him, along with innumerable other wondrous things, and the group known after his name as Christians still remains among us. Now, Josephus also references James the Righteous as one of the early leaders of the movement, and he also references John the Baptist and John the Baptist's um, conflict there with Herod. Other than that, outside of the Gospels, that's pretty much it for the historical evidence. But uh, unlike the Old Testament, things in the New Testament, the life and times of Jesus, <clears throat> uh, things that are recorded in the Bible, uh, the census, the kings that lived, Pilate, all those things can be historically verified with artifacts, with inscriptions, and with things like that. So I, I think we have pretty good basis for a historical Jesus. Now, I just want to say this. There, there is a group that goes around and teaches 
that the New Testament was written by some uh, Jewish Gnostic group uh, to encode the teachings of all the ages, and they took all the myths, like they took from Osiris, and they took from some of these others, I can't even remember. And that doesn't hold up to any scrutiny at all. There, there's no similarity between Osiris being chopped up and spread throughout the land of Egypt so that he rises from the dead in the grain when it comes up, and Jesus being crucified and his tomb being empty on the third day. Uh, also, that there would be more consistency one would expect to see between the various different Gospels. So I think this idea that Jesus was a myth that someone created or brought together, uh, for me right now, that doesn't hold up to one ounce of scrutiny. In fact, that's shakier than a house of cards and pretty easily deconstructed. And uh, so most serious scholars today accept the historical uh, validity of the person of Jesus. They accept the historical validity of the the gospel narratives, although they believe they're embellished, some believe they're embellished with le- legends. So here's where epistemology comes in. If you are predisposed to believe in the supernatural, then you're going to believe that all of the signs and wonders and, and power demonstrations and, and all that stuff with the resurrection is a completely valid historical uh, document. Uh, on the other side, if you're not inclined to believe in the miraculous at all, then you're going to believe that Jesus was a historical person, that probably some of the teachings and stuff that he said in there was true, but it was embellished with myth and legend to get people to believe and to make Jesus uh, bigger and better than he was. It depends on your epistemology. It depends on what you... It, basically, it depends on what you want to believe. Um, so, so the idea is to try to just let the evidence lead you. So for where I'm, I'm at right now, if I let the evidence lead me, then I've got to conclude that Jesus exists. And if for no other reason because Josephus says uh, that he rose from the dead, then if I'm going to use Josephus as something and say, well, this proves the historical Jesus, then how can I throw out, you know, the idea of his resurrection. So there's that. And then the, the other thing is that, that the disciples, they were persecuted. Um, uh, w- you know, the early Christians were persecuted. The early Christians died. And uh, uh, so there is that. Um, and then we come to the Apostle Paul. Is everybody doing okay with this? Uh, <laughs> then we come to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul's writing, this is probably 50 AD, so this is probably 20 years after, only two decades after Jesus and and Paul is as um, reliable a historical figure as Jesus, and as far as what he taught, um, is probably we probably even have a better record and it's more reliable and it's more consistent than even the Gospels. And Paul says this in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and this is one of the there are only seven letters that scholars today believe the Apostle Paul actually wrote. Um, the others are, are questionable, and there's lots of reasons for that, but obviously that's for another time. But this is one they're sure that Paul wrote. It dates, they think, around 50 A.D., so 20 years after or so after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also I received, and wherein you stand, by which you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. And then he goes on, he says, I delivered um, this to you, that Jesus was uh, crucified, uh, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, or Peter, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of 
500 brethren at once, of whom the greater remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all of the apostles. So we know that Paul had met with James. We know that he'd met with Cephas. We know from his other writings he'd met with the Twelve. He's saying there's at least 500 other people, most of whom are still alive and can give testimony, who say that Jesus appeared to them. So I think... Um, that we have good uh, reason to believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus that that at the very least the disciples of Jesus, some of them, believed that he had risen from the dead, that his tomb was empty, that Paul had talked to some of these people who had seen the Lord. Uh, and that it was recorded for us. And so I think if we just let the evidence lead us to, from strictly a historical standpoint, then I think we have pretty good, uh, pretty good foundation to stand on there. But here's the other thing. There were fragments of Gospels that were found in the Nag Hammadi Library in the 20th century that it took time to preserve, to piece together, and to translate. And so the the belief before the non-Kamadi library was that there was this one pristine apostolic teaching that Jesus gave to the disciples that was concise and clear. <clears throat> and the disciples passed it on to their disciples, who passed it on to their disciples, and so on. And about the second century A.D., all these heresies like Gnosticism and things like this, all these contrary ideas began to pop up. And so the church had to come together and squash these ideas. But when they found the Nag Hammadi Library and some other evidence um, that we don't have time to go into, they began to realize that there was that the Christian community was more diverse in its origins than we are. Uh, there are fragments of Gospels. Um, the, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, mentions nothing of the life of Jesus mentions nothing of the resurrection of Jesus and reads very, very differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet, it has at least as much validity historically as Matthew, Mark, and Luke as being possibly the true teachings of Jesus. You have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was left out probably, well, for lots of reasons. But Mary speaks of Jesus having appeared to her in dreams and visions after he had died. Even the word appeared, when it says Jesus appeared to the disciples or the apostles in the book of Acts, uh, one, um, uh, sorry, uh, Greek dictionary says that word appeared can literally mean to appear in a vision or to appear in a dream. And so, and it's not uncommon for people to uh, have experiences of people who appeared in dreams after they've died, or even to see them after they died, uh, to have visions or experiences of them. So it's really not that out of the ordinary. So there were some who emphasized the need for the historical belief in the historical and physical resurrection of Jesus, and there were other disciples in other groups in the first centuries that emphasize, no, the fact that the real issue is that Christ is uh, an abiding presence with all of us, 
and they were more interested in the symbolic ideas of the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean to us? But because the Catholic Church, for lots of reasons that I don't want to go into, because the Catholic Church uh, in the 3rd and 4th century was trying to assert its own authority, um, then, you know, this whole issue of orthodoxy and heresy got mixed up. So let's just come back to some of the things in the Gospels. Did Jesus make belief and faith in his resurrection something that was necessary for the eternal salvation? Is there anywhere in the Gospel records where Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I died for your sins, unless you believe that I raised from the dead, and unless you pray this prayer, you will not be saved? Oh, Jan, I just saw that. What do you say about part, this part of Josephus being added by the Christian church at a later date? Josephus was Jesus, Jewish. So, yeah, so that is the counter-argument to it. Um, and I suppose it has some validity because Josephus was Jewish, but as I read the statement, it doesn't sound to me like an affirmation that he is a Christian, rather that he is recording what they were claiming. Um, I think if it had been written later by a Christian, it would have been less subtle than it appears to be. So, uh, and, and it's my understanding anyway from the evidence that I've looked at that that's complete speculation, that somebody's just looking at that and saying, oh, well, this doesn't sound like Josephus because he was Jewish. So it's just ripping something out of the text without any real evidence to say uh, that it was tampered with. So how do we know to do it with that? and not with some other part of Josephus, just randomly. Um, so again, it comes back to epistemology, right? If you want to believe in Jesus, you're going to say, no, Josephus wrote this. If you don't want to believe in the resurrection, then people are going to say, oh, well, it must have been added by a Christian later on. So, But again, it, it does go to show us how shaky the actual evidence is if we let the evidence just lead us and say, okay, you have to believe this historical event in order to be saved. So to come back to what I was saying, Jesus never said that in the Gospels. Jesus never said that in the Gospels. Um, just take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Uh, he says believe in him. Well, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to believe historically in him? Does that mean we have to believe in a historic event? Or does that mean we have to believe the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which rose up much later? Even this idea of the Trinity, that who is Jesus? Well, he's got to be the, the Son of God, that you have to be Trinitarian. It's not in the Gospel accounts itself. I mean, there's pieces here, uh, but you know, Jan brought up how maybe the, the stuff from Josephus was added. There is good contextual evidence and scholarship that suggests that even the portions of Scripture that seem to teach the Trinity were possibly added later to give biblical validation to it. But Jesus isn't around with his disciples talking about what, what theologians call the hypostatic union. Unless you believe that I am God, fully God, light of light, um, and, and manifest in the flesh, you shall not be saved. Um, you know, nowhere does Jesus say, you, you got to go have your last rites or or have a priest forgive you for your sins, or you can't be saved? Nowhere does he say, unless you believe I died on the cross for your sins and pray this prayer, you'll be saved. He doesn't teach that. He teaches an ethic of love. 
He teaches about God. He teaches about the kingdom of, <laughs> hey, thanks, Aaron. Uh, I'm occasionally seeing uh, things popping up. He teaches about the kingdom of God. He teaches about consciousness. Uh, but a lot of these, these things that we fight over and wrestle over and say, well, these are necessary and essential for salvation. Again, it just doesn't make sense to me that God who loves us infinitely, who is infinitely wise, would say, I'm going to stake the salvation of all of humanity. Now get this again. This is what we're talking about with salvation. That people that cannot accept a belief in a historical event that has shaky historical evidence that they themselves cannot verify, that they cannot talk to anyone who did it, uh, that, that goes totally contrary to their experience, and unless they believe this preacher who tells them, or they believe the accounts in the book, which are inconsistent in the way they record the account of the resurrection, unless they in blind faith accept that, they are going to be tortured and kept alive in an eternal torture chamber for all eternity. I'm sorry, that is not a good plan of a loving and all-wise God. And I think the evidence actually doesn't lead us there. I think it's tradition. I think it's, it's, it's self-serving bias. I think it's that our subconscious gets programmed. Like I said, as a child, my subconscious gets programmed to believe all those things. So do I have to believe it? So here's what I'm saying. I believe personally in the historical references to Jesus. I believe in the reliability of the gospel records. I believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection of the person of Jesus. That's where I'm at today. Do I believe that that is what saves me from hell? No. Do I believe that a person has to believe that or they're going to go to hell? I categorically reject that proposition. I don't even think that was the early gospel. I think that the, 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 the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible, uh, oh, and I do believe in the abiding presence of Jesus. I do believe that Jesus, uh, as an abiding presence in the, the, the spiritual realm, can appear to people in dreams and visions. But see, here's the thing. Here's the other thing about dreams and visions. I, I've been a charismatic Christian all my life. I've talked to all kinds of people who've had dreams and visions of Jesus. I've had visions of Jesus myself, powerful visions. I've had powerful visions of Jesus where I received physical healing and knowledge about the future that I could not have known that came to pass. So those, you would think those are good reasons to believe in Jesus, and I do believe in Jesus. I just don't believe believing in the historical Jesus as I have to really has any saving or transforming life and power in it. I just don't believe that. Um, but but here's the issue with Jesus. Uh, Jesus does very Jesus-like things depending on what the person believes Jesus is going to do or be. So for me, the times that I've seen Jesus... He's been white. I'm white. All the pictures that I had in my subconscious of Jesus were as a white person. I've never seen Jesus in a vision as a Middle Eastern man. Um, but I have friends in Africa that swear that Jesus is black with uh, Afro hair, and Jesus appears and manifests to them as black. Um uh, to David, somebody like David Wilkerson, he'll have a vision of Jesus, and Jesus is bringing forth his apocalyptic judgments. 
somebody from the vineyard will have a vision of Jesus and he's showing up in Bermuda shorts and giving them hugs. <laughs> so my point is, is that these manifestations, they're all being governed by our subjective beliefs that are programmed in our subconscious. That, that, that there is this Christ presence, I believe, whatever we want to call it, that manifests through the framework of our own subconscious belief systems and programmings. Now, the other problem that we have, though, is then we become so superior to other people and other religions and other experiences. Well, as long as it's Jesus, then it's valid. Somebody who has a, a who's in India who can do just as many supernatural things or more than your charismatic preachers, uh, who maybe is more loving and compassionate than Christians are today, maybe more consistent with what we think of as the character of Christ, but they don't worship Jesus. They worship uh, Shiva or whatever, Krishna, whatever. And they have visions and, and caught up into the heavens. Or you have Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who have had near-death experiences and been taken up into heaven and told by God that they need to follow the Torah and that the Torah is the way to life. Or they have their own supernatural experiences, encounters, synchronicities, that God begins to manifest to them in that way. I think what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a, a presence of God that comes and manifests through the lenses of our own programming and predispositions. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's okay. I don't think you should necessarily fight with your subconscious. It would make no sense at all for me to go and become Hindu and worship some Hindu gods or something. I'm sticking with Jesus if for no other reason, because since the beginning of my, my upbringing, Jesus has been programmed into my mind and thinking. And so that is a very valid and easy access that I have to the presence of God. But I want I want to look at one other thing here in the book of Colossians, um, just, just to kind of show you. I don't think Paul I don't think Paul even uh, Jesus isn't saying you have to believe these things in order to be saved and miss hell. He's not saying that. And Paul says something really interesting here, and this this just you know changed me completely. Um, Paul says in Colossians chapter one verse twenty four. Now rejoice in my my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given to me to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, listen to this, even the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and generations, meaning prior to the time of Paul and prior to the time of Christ, there was a mystery, a truth, a reality that did not come into being with the person of Jesus, that existed in past generations but people didn't know about, that he says he's revealing. And what is it? What is that? The mystery is in verse 27, he says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ or the Messiah in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's doing the exact opposite here. He's saying don't look outside yourself. Look within to find the Christ. Look within to find the presence of God. Look within to find the divine spark. That's the, that's the word of God in its fullness. 
That's, that's where the saving, transforming power. As long as Christ is outside your soul, he has no power to change your soul. And so externalized religion has become nothing more than a game of record keeping. That God is up there somehow watching your behaviors to see how well you can follow the Jewish Torah. And if you follow it, and, and if you don't follow it, then he's, you know, the law. How well you can be righteous. And he's keeping score, so to speak. And if you mess up, it's okay. Uh, you go, because he took care, he didn't touch or deal with the sin in here, he dealt with the sin out here by taking it and placing it on Jesus at a time in history so that he could die for it and then he could rise from the dead, right? And then he can clear the books because he's no longer angry, he can clear the books. And, and so now there's a fix that's on, right? So you just confess your sin, your faults, whatever. And God clears the book. He says, okay, I'm forgiving that, and now you're good. So now when you die, you can go to this external heaven. So that everything has been externalized. The Savior is outside of us. We worship Him as being other and separate from us and outside of us. Uh, heaven, the kingdom of heaven is outside of us. It's someplace that we go when we die. And even our sins, our flaws are outside of us. So it's all this transactional relationship and religion and it does not touch the soul and it does not change the life. Because again, until your thinking changes, until your believing changes, until the structure of your personality from within changes, there ain't no transformation that's going on in your life. But if Paul's saying something else, if Paul's saying don't look outside yourself, but realize that the Christ, the presence of God, the divine spark, your, your connection and union with God has been inside of you all the time. That the light that gives light to all the world has been inside of you all the time. And really the issue is the externalized programming that we have been given. The externalized uh, uh, things that we have been conditioned to believe, uh, conditioned responses, whether that's from religious beliefs, whether that's from cultural beliefs, whether that's from traumas that we experienced, those things make up sort of this, this false self, this false identity. And the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus' teachings is the kingdom of heaven is within you. The power of Paul's teaching is the resurrection, the life of God has already happened inside of you. You are already connected to a higher self, to, to a Christ that's in the heavens but is also within you. That, that this is the treasure that is within the field, if you will. This is the pearl of great price. This authentic self, this divine nature that is you, that who being in the form of God, you don't have to think it robbery to be God, but don't use that to lord over other people, but make, take on the form of a servant and serve from that place of power, from that place of, 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 of authenticity, uncovering the authentic self, discovering that treasure within. The kingdom of heaven is within you. The treasure is within you. The Christ is within you. The light is within you. The divine nature is within you. And it's been there with humanity the entire time. It was never lost because of a fall. It's never lost because of sin. Sin is something that prevents you from coming into that awakening and coming into that consciousness. But the real resurrection is when you awake from your sleep 
and and you begin to raise up that divine frequency and when you begin to raise up that divine frequency then you can begin to move in signs and wonders and miracles and power you can begin to manifest the healing presence of Christ you can begin to see your soul healed not from the outside in but from the inside out you can begin to shake off the bondages of, of, of slavery of trying to please other people and trying to to, to kill, uh, gain the world, uh, the uh, social uh, appreciation from everybody else, but losing your own soul, losing your authenticity, losing your voice, losing your divine light. But, but it's, it's not really lost. Your consciousness is just disconnected from it. So the gospel reconnects you to that. The gospel reawakens you to that. And you begin to raise that up. And then there is real power for transformation to bring healing to other people, to bring light to other people, to bring life to other people, to work signs and wonders and miracles, to connect with the angelic realms, to connect with, with, with divine knowledge of the future, all of that, all of that potential is in you right now. You don't need it. You don't need another Jesus to come in from the outside. In fact, here's what's hap here's what happens. When you go into a place, they all have a version of Jesus. They all have an idea of who he is. I'm going to tell you right now, the, the Catholic Jesus is very different from the evangelical Protestant Jesus. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi's Jesus is very different than John Calvin's Jesus. The Baptist Jesus who doesn't do signs and wonders and miracles is very different than the charismatic Jesus. The Jewish roots Jesus is very, very different from the Jesus that I grew up with in the Methodist church or got to know in the Pentecostal church. And so all those things are group consensus, group thought forms, belief systems that do take on a spirit, do take on a life, do take on a power. And so you go into a revival meeting, you go into a church, whatever that agreement, that group consensus is, there is generated then a real essence from the divine spark within, from the divine spark giving life and power to that construct. And the moment you internally make agreements or invite that to come into you to save you, then you are welcoming the life and the power and the voice of that Jesus. You are welcoming that form of God, that deific mask, if you will, that form of God to come into your life. And that thing will begin to relate to you and speak to you. And in many ways, will begin to control and determine the outcomes in your life. And Christ, the divine presence, We'll work, we'll work with that, but it's, again, it's something from the outside that you're bringing into yourself that now dictates how you are receiving and perceiving Christ. That's why Jesus could say in John's Gospel, no one has seen the Father at any time, but I have seen his form. See, Jesus was manifesting a completely different formation of who God was than what his opponents had. And so maybe if we, so, so, so let me bring this back around. So what do I believe about God? I believe that God is, is the divine intelligence, uh, the, the intelligence, the consciousness in everything. That there, there seems to be a conscious universe. We could get into quantum physics and all of that. Uh, a, a conscious universe. Something keeps the, the world spinning around the sun. Something prevents asteroids or Things from hitting the earth and completely destroying it or knocking it completely out of kilter. Something keeps the blades of grass 
growing. Something keeps the leaves manifesting, uh, you, you know, every spring on the tree. Something um, keeps me alive. Something keeps my heart beating. Something keeps me breathing. Uh, all of that, this sort of what some theologians call the ground of being, is the divine presence, and it is universal, and it is all-pervasive, but it is above and beyond our ability to conceptualize and conceive at this level of consciousness. It's from a deeper place of consciousness. It's deeper than your personal experiences, than your personality. It's deeper than all of the different uh, archetypes. And that is source, that is God, that is the divine, that is the divine energy, whatever you want to call it. That is the God that the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have, his, and, and have, have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. It's from that place. And by the way, he's saying that to Greeks. He's saying that you got this unknown God here. This unknown God here is the God that I serve. And it's the one that you all move and live and have your being in. And he's not far from any of you. He's very close. Go look at it in Acts 17. It's, it's radically paradigm shifting. So then we relate to that or we manifest that or we, we bring forth the fullness of that in our lives through thought forms, through belief systems, through ideas, so that we can relate at this level of consciousness. And that's all they are is forms and ideas. They're not the real thing, and that's where we get messed up. So somebody uh, in a, from a Native American tradition can be experiencing the Great Spirit, and it's the same Holy Spirit that I'm experiencing as a Christian believer. They may call it the Great Spirit, and I may call it the Holy Spirit. They may experience this presence in the form of a animal spirit or something in a shamanic journey. They're experiencing the essence of the divine through that vehicle. It's no different than me experiencing the essence of the divine through what I might perceive as being an angelic presence that is with me. The, the, the issue is the form, but the source and the power of all of it is the same. So that's where I'm at with things. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Give me give me some feedback. I know there was lots of stuff popping up as I was talking, but I kind of got caught up in my thoughts. Now, again, this is all subject to change. I'm just telling you, I am in reformation, reformation. I cannot go back to where I was. I'm trying to figure out, like a lot of you, how to plow forward. So I'm just sharing with you my ideas not trying to push this on anybody. Um, so, and I'm open to the dialogue. So, so again, I personally believe, to sum it up, I personally believe in the historical person and death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't believe that saves me from hell, that belief. Um, I don't believe other people have to believe that to be saved from hell. Um, and I do think Christianity is going to look very, very differently even after we come out of this uh, quarantine. All right, guys, I hope you have a really, really awesome Easter uh, Resurrection Sunday. I know some people, I mean, man, we'll argue over everything and anything. I have no problem calling it Easter. I have no problem with bunnies and Easter eggs. I have no problem if it was a pagan fertility whatever or if it wasn't. doesn't bother me at all because um, I no longer feel the need to judge those things as negative or bad or evil. So it's all good. So happy Ishtar, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday, whatever you hold to. Um, I think hopefully, I think we're seeing some unity 
that is coming around, maybe for those of us that are engaging spiritual things, we don't have to agree on everything, certainly. Um, but I think we're finding some, some common ground out there. So anyway, God bless you. Love you guys. I think one of the things I'm going to do, um, and I hate to bring this stuff up, but I am going to post a, um, a link to our, the Awakening Center Facebook donate page. Um, obviously we haven't been meeting. And so like everybody else, we haven't been, uh, able to bring in income. Um, and so, you know, I'm not asking those of you that are struggling. Uh, I have no problem being in solidarity with everybody who's struggling and wondering financially right now. Uh, I feel really good about that. We're all kind of in this mess together. But if you're not struggling uh, and your income is, you know, secure for whatever reason, whether it's the protection, paycheck protection loan or your company hasn't laid you off or you're essential personnel, um, and you want to donate to what we're doing so that we can keep doing it, so that we can be around after this thing's over. We do have a building. We have bills. We are an organization that has to pay a lot of stuff. Uh, and the majority of my income also came from there, even though I work um, uh, outside. The idea there, working outside the church, was to supplement my income. So I'll be putting that link up um, on this thread. And also on the Awakening Center page, um, maybe even on my own page. Again, it's not to pressure anybody, but uh, if you have uh, to give right now, that would be really, really helpful for us. I wish that we could get enough abundance that we could help take care of other people, and maybe we will. So if you have a lot of extra, um, we've talked about some things maybe that we could do to help uh, people in, that are part of our local uh, congregation who may be struggling because they're out of work. Um, but right now that's not a reality for us because we need to get enough money just to cover our own expenses. And I'm not talking about my salary, although it would be nice to not worry about stuff. Um, but, again, like I said, I'm not worried about, you know, being in sol solidarity with everybody else. But uh, so if you, if you think about that and want to do that. Otherwise, have a very happy Easter. Um, God bless you. And uh, shalom. Namaste. Uh, have a great day. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for all the great comments. I'll go back and look at them. Uh, and give me some ideas, too, if, of topics maybe that you want to hear as we're doing some of the live things. Uh, I'm hoping to do more of these, but I've been super busy during the week with my other work and life. And, of course, um, helping Julie with the boys now that they're here full time. And we're homeschooling and all that stuff. So, anyway, love you guys. Talk to you all later. Bye.